Welcome, everyone, to episode 91 of Some Look at Scott, part of the Media Book Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we're taking a dive into what I think uh, Netflix is calling their most watched original film ever, uh, largely probably in thanks to the fact that they changed their viewer numbers to be two minutes of viewership uh, rather than two-thirds uh, of something. But that's neither here nor there, and that film is the Chris Hemsworth-led action thriller Extraction, which also happens to be produced by the Russo Brothers production company, Agbo. Uh, before, like we said, before we get to that, though, Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Scott. Uh, as of this recording, I have my final exam of law school in the morning, like my final, final exam of law school. So that yeah. um, is, is pretty exciting, I guess. Um, but then after I finish that tomorrow on Wednesday, I will begin with, uh, studying for the bar. So the, the grind never stops, uh, really, but you know, we'll, we'll be happy to move from one thing to the other, even if, you know, the, the future is still a little bit up in the air, especially with this, uh, quarantine stuff continuing. Yeah. The grind never stops is maybe a, a theme for this podcast as, as yeah. I believe that, uh, the grind never stops might be a good way to sum up some of. Tyler Rake's life and and story over the course of Extraction, uh, but also some of the news stories as, as well. Coming because uh, it seems like AMC and Universal uh, want to grind out a, a gritty, bloody war of the, theatrical release windows and protection and and things like that. Although uh, we'll get to that in in part two. In the meantime, like I mentioned already, Extraction is the movie that we're covering today. It stars Chris Hemsworth and is directed by Sam Hargrave who is better known for his choreography than anything as he is, was the choreographer on Avengers Endgame. Uh, the, I guess that is how the, the Russo brothers probably knew him from, from directing Avengers Endgame. And uh, like I said, produced by the Russo brothers production company, Agbo. And it's uh, Hemsworth stars as a former Australian military turned black market mercenary for Hyler named Tyler Rake, who's hired by an Indian drug lord to extract his son, Ovi, played by Rudkrash Jaiswal from Dhaka, Bangladesh, where he is being held for ransom by a rival drug lord. Hemsworth's rake has his own backstory to contend with, however, and when the extraction of Ovi inevitably goes wrong, rake is forced to wrestle with some of his own demons as he plots a way to escape the city with his own and Ovi's lives. Scott, did the action and choreography of Extraction give you fond memories of another highly choreographed action series that likes an, a May release date? Or was Extraction's action and violence only a distraction away from an otherwise empty film? Yeah, I mean, John Wick is obviously what you're alluding to there, I think, in that buildup. And I think it is it is hard not to watch uh, this movie and, and think about John Wick. Um, but I think that this is actually kind of the the negative effect of John Wick being so popular uh, on maybe the the course of action movies going forward is that a lot of there's going to be a lot of imitators that come along right and a movie like this which I'm just going to come right out and say it I think if this movie if it's not for John Wick if it's not for the Russos and it's not for Chris Hemsworth 
this is a straight to video action movie. This is straight to DVD. Like you could put, you could plug Steven Seagal in there and this would be any of any of, you know, any one of his movies that have come out on uh, straight to DVD in the past 20 years. Isn't isn't a Netflix release the same thing as straight to DVD? I mean, essentially, I guess uh, nowadays, but I mean like even, even lower than that on the totem pole, right? Because like this, I mean, Netflix releases get watched a lot more than than these these straight to DVD things do. But regardless, I think in terms of the quality of the film is mainly what I'm thinking of. Um, I think that the story is completely uninteresting. Um, you know, I, I don't think that John Wick, at least until the last film, really had a particularly interesting story. But they were at least trying something creative, right? Like there's this whole brotherhood of assassins. There's you know the the hotel. Yeah. There's yeah. the their own currency, right? Like there's stuff you haven't seen before. There's creative, interesting stuff. This is just kind of your bland, you know, international mercenary kidnapping thriller type movie with weird, like slightly tasteless child soldier overtones. Mm, uh, yeah. Like we have a, a child getting thrown off a cliff in like the first 20 well, minutes. Worse than that, movie. just thrown off a building. Yeah. And, and I, I think face off it. Yeah. A building, I guess. I don't know why I, I thought it was a cliff, but um, yeah. But r- regardless, um, I think face off is the only movie that can get away with just murdering a child in its opening scene. Um, yeah, because, that, that was, I will say that's such a jarring thing to see. Cause it's like a hard cut immediately to oh, a kid getting thrown off a building and I'm shot like, in the, the face. Hell? Yeah. Well, in the beginning, a kid gets shot in the face. Um, so, so that's the kind of movie you're dealing with here. And, and I just don't think that that brutal violence is really offset by anything particularly fun or interesting or that there is a, a you know, a, a interesting or engaging hero at the center of this, like there is in John Wick, right? Like, I, I, I mean, I'm definitely in the minority in saying this, but I didn't really feel that Chris Hemsworth brought a whole lot to this performance. I thought that uh, this character was pretty boring. I thought that the the attempts to give him a little bit of backstory, you know, a little bit of personal history that maybe have affected him, you know, and turned him into the person that he is, were just kind of shoehorned in. And there, you know, there was these very, very specific moments where it's like, okay, and here's where he's going to get the emotional monologue, right? Um, and, you know, there, there's like the, the classic line at the beginning or whatever, where he's talking to the Khan, I believe is her name, the the woman who is like his, uh, a fellow mercenary assassin, whatever exactly it is yeah, that he does. Basically his handler, and, though. Yeah, and she she's asking him, like, or he he's like saying that he doesn't know why he does all this stuff, or it's like to help people or whatever, and she's like, I think it's because you want to keep spinning the chamber, and hopefully, you know, at, at one point, the bullet, you'll actually catch a bullet. And I'm like, great. I mean, that's every single action hero of the last, you know, 30 years is like this guy who has a death wish. And that's why he's secretly in, in this. And I just, I, from that point on, I was just kind of rolling my eyes throughout the whole thing. There is one sequence, right, that everyone has talked about um, with this movie in the middle of this movie involving a oneer, right, involving a, a long traffic tracking shot that goes on for, I think, about a solid 12 minutes for this one action scene. And it's interesting to watch, but... For reasons that we can get into, I don't think it works as well as something like 1917. I actually think it. it okay, well, if the bar is 1917, well, I mean, that's a tough one. I, I think because it is so recent, that is like the the thing that immediately comes to mind. Um, I, I think mean, the like, better comparison I, is the rhythm section from earlier this year, right? That they that has a okay. wonder in it. That's pretty. That that is true. That is true. Yeah. Um, but I think in in terms of more famous examples, maybe. But but I, I mean I think that if you're talking quality wise, 
the rhythm section might be a good comparison point, at least in my opinion. Um, I mean, I do think it's, yeah. it's, it's incredibly impressive how they um, pulled it off. Like I said, it is the one mo moment in the movie where I was like, okay, I'm actually like interested to see how this plays out. Even if ultimately I don't think it works. And I do think it kind of takes you out of it in a way that a oneer is technically supposed to like immerse you in, right? Like that's, that's why, that's why they do it in, in 1970. Uh, for you know, for for example, is to immerse you in it, and I didn't get that feeling. But yeah, th those are just kind of some of my general thoughts. I mean, people seem to be enjoying this movie. I think if you are a fan of just you know your your classic action movies, then you'll probably get something out of this because it is you know it's a Netflix watch or in quarantine, you know whatever. But for me, I just felt like this was a lot of mindless violence, right? Like this is this was all the violence of John Wick, but you know, stripped away from all the things that really make John Wick interesting. Some of the interesting choreography, the really compelling, I think, and and sort of weird lead performance of Keanu Reeves that I think really makes those films work. So I, that's those are my general thoughts, I guess. Yeah, I mean, to say that Chris Hemsworth and Keanu Reeves bring a different energy to their, to their respective performances in these two franchises is an understatement. I'm definitely more positive on Chris Hemsworth. I mean, I, I like Keanu's as, as well. I think you kind of have to write a role for Keanu and, and like, I, I don't know how much, you know, acting or, or it's not even flexibility at this point. It's like, I don't know how much audience flexibility, like audiences have in terms of flexibility of, of understanding and like taking on Keanu's roles at this point. Like, like audiences want a very specific kind of role from, from Keanu and, and you write for that. And I think Chris Hemsworth is, is someone who's a little bit more flexible. Obviously he has this really, we, I, I'm almost thinking borderline kind of weird um, persona, like acting persona around him. Mostly, I mean, probably just because of Thor. But you know, he's in movies like the Men in the Men in Black, or like re, like soft reboot slash revival last year, and, and a couple of the movies here and there where he's just kind of like this, like he's basically just some goofy comedy relief action character and I, and I don't know why it seems like he started to be typecast in those types of roles i think there's been a, a couple others as well that I'm, I'm just kind of blanking on right now that he's played sort of comic relief characters because i think that he he starts to dim in my opinion and, and you may just disagree with this scott i think he starts to demonstrate that he can do a lot more than just be the comic relief because i think he brings a lot of physicality to this role as tyler rake i think that he's not done any justice whatsoever by just getting a horrible character written for him. Like I, this Tyler Ray character is like maybe a little bit likable and ultimately just, there's just like too much self-loathing in, in the character to, to really like in, get you invested in it. Cause like you said, you have this whole notion where this early line is like, Oh, you're just spinning the chamber. Like you have a death wish. Right. And it, and it takes far too long in the film to feel like, uh, this character isn't actually like doesn't actually have a death wish. I mean, full spoilers for the for the movie. I mean, like by the time the end of the movie rolls around and there is this climactic moment on the bridge. I actually think there's like two big scenes. Like, one is the oneer, and and the second is this massive bridge scene that you get a glimpse of at the beginning of the movie, then plays out in full at the end. Um, they do some. I would I'd say less interesting, but more just like uh, visually, you know, climactic scenes uh, with that and. And I think that the time that that scene rolls around and and something happens that you think is you know bound to happen at some point in in the film or at one point or another, it, you 
yes, he may have overcome his death wish, but it was just like, it just felt a little bit too late to, to really mean anything for this character. And, you know, we can talk about the very, very ending and, and how he felt about that because they do uh, try to try to make things a little bit ambiguous uh, at the end of the film uh, for better or for worse. We'll get to that. But I think overall, I think I do really like Chris Hemsworth's performance. And I think that what he is, is bring a lot to this character who one is poorly written, like I was just saying, but two also just has like the worst name of a character I've ever seen in my life, Tyler Rake. I mean, that's just, that's again, it's a classic action. I mean, you can go back to John Matrix or whatever from Commando. I mean, like these type of characters always have names like that. So in that regard, I think it was completely on brand for for that type, for what they were going for. But yeah, it is terrible. It's, I mean, it's a cheesy name. No one would ever have that name. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's especially cheesy because he kills someone with a rake in the movie, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I forgot (laughs) about that scene. Another one of those brutally violent scenes. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that the it's it was really impossible for me not to be thinking about John Wick and impossible for me not to like talk about it in the frame of John Wick because I think this I think you're right, Scott. I think this movie exists really because of John Wick. Like Netflix spending money on this type of movie and this not going to some other like minor studio or like I don't even know like maybe this movie doesn't even get made if Netflix is funding it. But like, this movie doesn't get funded without without John Wick and especially the success of of uh, Chapter Two and Chapter Three of John Wick. Uh, in in particular, because I think you know the first movie was fine, but that that franchise took off with two, and then even more word of mouth type of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I do think the choreography is pretty good at times. It definitely doesn't have the same, I think, commitment to close quarters combat that a lot of that John Wick I think it, um, really leaned harder into. And then I mean, I think in 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 Chapter Three kind of mastered. I think I think. Uh, Parabellum last year was kind of the epitome of the series in, in that respect in the way that they were innovate, almost Mission Impossible like in their innovation of of combat. And this this one takes a, a slightly different approach. There's still a lot of close quarters combat, but there's also just a lot of like gun gunfighting and things like that, which is less interesting from a choreography perspective. Um, but but in the moments where it does get up close and personal, whether it's hand to hand or gunfighting, I think that it does a really good job. It's clear that Sam Hargrave. Uh, not unlike Chad Stahelski, has a lot of experience doing choreography, and I think he is in those moments able to bring uh, that type of energy to the role. I'm, you know, I still think the one shot works really well. I think that, it, yes, I, I think I kind of hear what you're saying in some respects, but I think there are still moments uh, that the one shot is able to obscure certain things from view, increase that tension level, and also. Um, when things happen that just come out of nowhere uh, visually on the screen, um, it, it does kind of, uh, it feels appropriately paced and appropriately kind of breathtaking moments as if you were in the moment with, you know, whether it's Chris Hemsworth that the, that the shot is tracking or with Ovi, because there are times where it goes to Ovi uh, as well during, during that tracking shot. And so I think it works really well. It's definitely not as good as 1917. It's, I think, on par with the one shot in the rhythm section. Um, maybe just better because I think they're doing more than just driving in a car, which is mostly the one shot in the rhythm section. I think that they are, you know, going into buildings, coming out of, going up the stairs, down the stairs, um, you know, a hand-to-hand combat fight, you know, cars involved. They, they just do a little bit of everything in the scene. And so I think I have a lot of respect for that. I don't know how many actual, you know, cuts there were in the filming process. I mean, we talk about 1917, which is, you know, stitched together long takes. It's a bunch of long takes. You know, spliced together, edited together. I, I don't know how many of those might have been cut together for this, 
uh, for this version, but if it was all one shot, it, it's it's really impressive, I think. And and overall, I think that the movie does have a couple highlights, but uh, to your point about kind of the, the, the child brutality in the film in particular was uh, uns to me unsavory. And I, I agree that it was lacking in, as much as I liked the performance of Chris Hemsworth, and I also liked the the henchman of the Indian drug lord. I think is is his name Ravi or something. I can't remember his name. Uh, I liked his performance as well uh, in in the film, and uh, they have a couple good scenes together. I think if if you want to talk about just other performances, we can get to in more detail. And uh, unfortunately, it's just you're right about the comparison from the lore and the world building element that John Wick kind of hooks you and gets you to come back to the sequel for when you talked about um, the hotel and this kind of that exists in that, in that world. And, and that was the most interesting thing to me in, in John Wick, the original one. I think that was the reason why I was, you know, invested in, in watching two and then ultimately three is because there's just really interesting world being built around John Wick as a character. And there's just none of that in this film. This film is just not trying to do that. It, maybe it could have done that with this sort of like black market mercenary group. If it, it maybe it could have gone into the back story of that and, and built in more uh, characters there. At the same time, like uh, they're not trying to build a franchise, and John Wick was trying, I think, trying to build a franchise. And so maybe there's some choices made there, but ultimately it just made for an experience that I think maybe you enjoy roughly the same, if not a little less than John Wick in the moment but you certainly aren't thinking about a week later. Like, I mean, I watched this movie over a week ago and I had to remind myself some of the, some of the details coming into the review, just because uh, a lot of this is stuff that you're going to forget in a week or two. Whereas John Wick, you know, it's going to, it's going to keep you thinking a little bit more. And I think, yeah. So Scott, I gave some of my thoughts on the action scenes that, that we had here in the film, especially the one shot and you gave some of yours as well. And I think that's one of the things that we really, that really is worth talking about with this film is the action, the choreography, Let's, I know we've been we've been doing it both of us, but let's maybe try to stop comparing it to, to John Wick uh, to give it a to maybe give it a fair shake. But what did you think of the action, the choreography, and the set pieces overall? Yeah, I'm gonna have to compare it to something else here in a second. Then, but um, I, I I think I agree with what you said up top. There's just too much gun gunplay for me in the movie, and like that to me is just. Over, over sustained periods of time, which in particular that bridge scene that you're talking about at the end is. It's it's just a lot of gunfighting. Um, it's just not interesting to me. And again, I understand that I'm someone in the minority. Like the comparison point for me, right? When I, when I was watching this scene, I thought this is like watching somebody play Call of Duty. And people love Call of Duty, right? It's one of the most popular video games out there. I've never enjoyed it. I just think that the like constant just move around take cover you know shoot you know the the boring first person shooter action just just doesn't get me excited in the way that it, it does for other people and i think that's a lot of what you're getting particularly in this climactic scene so even though there's a lot of loud shooting there's you know brutal deaths and stuff i was bored during mm -hmm. during this uh last sequence to, to be honest and and again i i fully acknowledge that i'm not going to be, I mean, that there's going to be plenty of people who are on the complete other side of that and who are, are totally thrilled by that. But uh, yeah, even the close combat stuff, right? Like there, there is some like close combat gun gunplay, which is something that you see in John Wick. And I, that's just not stuff that it, in John Wick that gets me excited really in, in 
I mean, I know we're not trying to compare it, but again, what I think, I think it is a natural comparison. And what I like in John Wick is like the, the really creative staging, right? Like people, people on horses, like doing, doing stuff, people, the, the knife store scene, right? Like that's the, you know, the crazy the mirror, like martial the mirror art. room in John right, Wick. Right. Mar martial yeah. arts style, like choreography is what, what, in, what I, I mean, I, it draws me to John Wick and what makes me find that interesting. I also think that those that that the John Wick movies are more fast paced in terms of their action. And this movie, it felt like at times, right? Like we talked about the, the guy getting killed with the rake. There's other moments. It feels like it's like focusing in on the brutality just a little bit too much. Yeah. And I don't know if they were trying to go for some sort of political overtones with including child soldiers and all of that in here. I don't know. But if they were, it didn't it didn't come off. At all, but as far as as far as the oneer goes, I think my main problem is the perspective of the scene is that for the the large majority of the scene, you are behind the characters, and that was sort of what bothered me a little bit, and it made me feel a little bit more like it was a it was a video game in a way because like that was one of the the main complaints about people who didn't like the the technique in 1917, right? Was that like oh this feels like a video game. I don't agree with that because there are a lot of shots where you're facing the characters, right? Uh, but in terms of in terms of this movie, you are—I mean, it's like you are sitting in the back seat of the car for a lot of it while all of this action is going on. It, it made me think of the Telltale Walking Dead Dead game at the very beginning. You are Lee is like in the back of a police car, like in 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 shackles or whatever, and you know the car is driving for a little bit, and you're just like behind the characters watching. I mean, that that's exactly what it reminded me of. Uh, and so I think for that reason, it did it did take me out of it a little bit. And, it, it, you know, again, instead of immersing me into it, I think if they had, you know, maybe tried to do that more in the movie then that, I could have gotten on board with it. But the fact that it is just this one sort of isolated sequence, it felt like they were just saying, hey, let's show off here because we can. And because, you know, Netflix gave us a big, you know, a bigger budget or whatever uh, than we might normally get. For this type of movie so let's let's do something flashy and it is flashy right and it is cool and it's fun to watch but ultimately i i don't think it does much to elevate this movie in my mind because again it it did just feel a little too video gamey to me in, in large large parts yeah i get i get that if the comparison point is trying to be i guess more innovative, I keep going back to that word, I don't know if that's necessarily the right word in this particular context, but trying to do something more interesting with a one shot, right? Like even in the rhythm section, if you want to compare it to that, like that was shot from the passenger seat of the car, yeah. looking out the, uh, like looking towards Blake Lively's character and you could hardly ever see out the front, which is what increases the tension so much in that scene, because you can't actually see what the character is seeing. And here you see mostly everything that the character that you're behind's perspective shows uh, in the scene. I think the the part where the one shot gets good is when they start like weaving through the buildings and the camera does take on a little bit of a life of its own. And then it comes mm -hmm. down onto the, uh, and then when in the scene toward, towards the end of the scene, when you get the hand to hand combat between uh, Chris Hemsworth's Tyler Rake and I was gonna look up the name of the, it, it's uh, Seiju, Seiju. Saju, yeah. Yeah, Saju, he's played by Rondeep Huda. Um, I, I think that that's a really good scene. And then the moment in that scene that I think actually works really well because and goes to the things like, oh, something coming out of nowhere is just 
all of a sudden when they get hit by cars, I was just like, oh geez, uh, it was very yeah. That's that I did I did think that part of it worked reasonably well. Yeah, because I mean, because that's what you're looking for in a one shot, right? The whole, like, for, there's lots of I guess there's lots of different mentalities around it, but I think if you're trying to build tension with a one shot, you need things that are happening out of the field of vision of the camera, and that's just fundamental. Less of that is fundamentally happening when you're taking a over the shoulder perspective kind of kind of kind of way of going about shooting it. Like it, it has to be something coming out of nowhere, then, um, which does happen at the end of the scene, but that's 12 minutes into the into a scene that. A lot of the time it is just tracking from behind, which is whatever. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with that personally, but I understand how that's maybe less interesting camera work if you're comparing it to other ways you could shoot You could shoot a one shot. Yeah, waves is another example, right? Like of circling spinning, around yeah. the car that I think works really well. Yeah, I, I think overall I agree the bridge scene was kind of a, a letdown based on a lot of the combat. Even the combat coming right before that, right, when they're trying to make their way to the bridge and Chris Hemsworth, you know, is going to basically try to cr try to create this distraction using like grenades and things like that. I, like even that is more interesting than ultimately what happens with is basically just a you know an automatic weapon and a bunch of a bunch of men and a few helicopters and art and like a rocket propelled grenade launcher. I mean, it, it gets very basic. I think towards the end, almost almost more war movie than action thriller uh, in, in the final scene, which is I mean that's whatever. It's just not the not the kind of final set piece I was hoping for, uh, and and definitely doesn't compare to something. Like the mirror room from John Wick in in, in John Wick Two, or even uh, the window room, which is uh, something I guess something slightly different in in John Wick Three uh, when he's fighting the the two guys at the same time in the room with the windows um, mm -hmm. that are that's breaking that's sectioning off the different areas of the room. I think those are definitely more innovative. Like, like that's that's an example right there. I think you can refer to the scenes in John Wick by saying like the window room scene or like the mirror room scene. Like you can just tell from the description, right, that there's something cool and interesting going on here. Like there's like the bridge scene, I guess, is what you would call the climax. I mean, that's just yeah. not like it does. It doesn't have the same catchiness to it as like describing the the scenes from John Wick. Yeah, that's fair. And and there's like and also just the way the the movie ends, right? Like I mean not the actual ending, but the way the action piece of the movie ends, just a sniper bullet. It's just like, yeah, you know. Yeah. It, it's just like this could have happened at any time, right? Like Right. It's a bit of a let, it's a bit of a letdown for sure. Yeah. Um it, it just feels a little bit more basic. And I think that's and that's your point that I think that you're trying to make as well. But with that, I mean I think the performances are probably the next place to to go to after that and 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 First and foremost is Chris Hemsworth uh, in this film. It seems like you're less impressed with what he brings to this role. I'm a little bit more impressed and a little bit more disappointed in the character uh, overall. Maybe, maybe you're not. Maybe, maybe you just can't dissociate the two in, in the same way that I can. Not to say that. Not not to say that I'm like a more nuanced observer of the film. Just like I thought about the two more separately than you are. Uh, but Scott would love to get more of your thoughts here on Chris Hemsworth's performance and whether or not you think he could he could become a, a slightly more gritty action star in the future i think that i know i just said i was about to throw it over to you but I, I if you think of like this men in black reboot last year and even thor on one in the spectrum i think that he's just like overcorrected horribly with this film on the other yeah. side of like grittiness and 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 hard-edged kind of action thriller star and i think that there is like a gold i do believe that there's a goldilocks in the middle that that he's might be able to find if he has the right material that will allow him to be the action star that Keanu or Tom Cruise even is I think I think he has those abilities and capabilities and physicality to do those things. I mean it's obvious like he's such a I mean he's he's ripped. I mean he's well built and and he has and he has like his acting chops about him to to do that. Um I just think that this was 
this was like makeup for all those comedy roles that he played in action movies in past years. But I, I wonder what you think. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that because I think he could have used some more. I mean, like, he's a funny guy, in my opinion. Like, yeah. Thor, to me, is one of the funniest characters in the MCU. And so I think that type of stuff is more in his wheelhouse. And I don't feel like they utilized maybe, you know, him in the best possible way in this role. Because there's just no kind of, there's no real spark to this character, in my opinion. Um, like, you know, you think about other great action heroes, what, like, like uh, Bruce Willis as John McClane, right? Like he he's a wisecracker, right? He's not he's not the fit physical specimen that a lot of you know action stars are, but he's a wisecracker. Elsewhere, if you look at um, you know an Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, right? Like they do have the the physical, they have the brutality, you, you know, they they have the physicality, they have like the, the corny one liners and everything. There's you know th there's a sort of hallmark that they you know have made their name off of and it has made them so successful tom cruise is another one you mentioned right like just sort of the passion and intensity that he brings to every role i think is you know his calling card and i just didn't feel like there was anything unique about this character like to be quite honest it just felt like chris hemsworth didn't want to be there in certain moments of this movie and maybe maybe that's again part of how the character was written as sort of just this blase, like, I don't care if I live or die type of guy. Um, but that, again, we've seen that a million times. So I, I didn't care about that that much. I didn't care about the one scene where they tried to have, you know, some emotional resonance where he talks about his son dying when he's talking to the uh, boy. And I mean, it's clear, right, that they want you to really believe in this relationship between him and, and Ovi, the boy. And you know, how that comes to develop over the, the course of the movie. But I just didn't like, I, 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 there's just not enough of the two of them. I, again, I didn't feel like there was a spark from either character for me to really like want be rooting for this relationship, like to, to happen, this sort of like father son type thing to happen. Um, and, and so it was just kind of a blank slate for me, unfortunately. And I think in terms of Keanu, right, I think Keanu he just has like that Zen-like thing about him that makes the ridiculousness of John Wick, like it kind of brings it back down to earth, right? And I think that's what I like about what Keanu brings to John Wick is that like um, you have this, you know, these insane action sequences with people throwing knives, people on horseback shooting each other. And then you have Keanu who is just like straight faced, you know, with his classic Keanu like delivery the whole time. And it's just like the, the contrast, the dichotomy of it works so well, I think in those movies. And it just felt like he was Chris Hemsworth just doesn't have that thing, right? That that Keanu, like that intangible thing that makes Keanu Keanu. Uh, and he doesn't have. I mean, again, his yeah. character didn't have anything, yeah, any sort of spark. And like, I think that he could have had that again, right? Because I think he is funny, right? Like, I think Thor plays very well to his strengths, but. They just didn't do that here. Like, so it's it's not so much a knock on him as just maybe just the way that the directors and writers used it here. Yeah, I think that I do think I do think what you were saying earlier around him not like seeming like he doesn't really want to be there is, is totally the way the character is written. Like, this character doesn't doesn't like he's only there because he's yeah. sitting in the chamber and and like has a death wish. He doesn't like the the first half of like he doesn't actually care about anything that's going on. Like. Yes, he wants to complete his mission and protect this kid, but like, doesn't like he has no investment, and and you as the viewer have no investment, and I think that's a disservice to Chris Hemsworth's talent. I don't necessarily think that going leaning more like leaning too heavily into that 
uh, comedy side has, I mean, maybe it's just because again, he hasn't had the right material with that, but he, he hasn't found the material on the comedic side to, to be, I think really considered a serious, a serious action movie star, even though he, he clearly has the physical capabilities. And unfortunately he's not, he's not going to find uh, it in this film either. He's not going to find it in the serious role either. I think it is going to take some middle ground and, and, I mean, maybe. It, I mean, maybe the truth is he's going to have to get out of the MCU before he's able to really do that. I don't know. Like that. That just maybe the tough, tough reality of it. Um, I, f- I, I found it funny that the the Rotten Tomatoes c- critics consensus describes his performance as electric, and I was like, if there is one thing this performance is not, it is electric. Like, okay, you can you can say that you like like the performance, you think he does a good job, he's an effective action hero, but electric is just such a weird adjective to use for. Like a character that just never really comes alive. I don't feel like in any moment. I think that there are moments where it comes. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't personally call it electric. But I think that there are moments where it does come alive, even in in scenes that you kind of scratch your head about why they why they even had these scenes, even though it is it does provide him a chance to come alive. I think one of them is is the one you get with David Harbour. I mean, just like such a... Why was David Harbour in this movie? I asked the same thing, and I was about to ask you that when we get to supporting casting, so maybe we can transition that direction, but I have no idea why David... Like, this must have been part of his Stranger Things deal with Netflix or something, that he has to, like, show up in another movie with them. I I have no idea. Uh, But, wow, what a throwaway role for him. But I I do think that scene is a moment for Chris Hemsworth's character to come more alive and to show that maybe, maybe he does care a little bit more about the things that are happening. The problem, I mean, the problem is, is that that's like two thirds into the movie. Like there's, I mean, you have, there's let, there's like less than even an act left in the film when that's happening. And it's so late in the game. And you finally feel like you're getting that, you're getting that more emotional side of, of the performance. I, I just think that, that this, this whole character is kind of just lost at sea in this film and and really just doesn't have any, any direction, any meaningful direction it can go in just because of the place that it's in. And, and, and also the, the, arc that it's clear this character is going to go on over the course of one there's just really not anywhere interesting to go for it and i think that's it's unfortunate because i do think that the chris hemsworth is capable i do think he is whether whether it's in, in injecting a little bit more comedy into this role and finding that happy medium that i was kind of talking that i was kind of alluding to earlier or just you know doing something different he's never going to become keanu i mean keanu is just like such a cult of personality around all the performances that he's done a lot of really crappy VOD movies, like straight to DVD movies that he did in like the late 2000s, early, early mm-hmm. 2010s that create, like kind of cultivated that personality that he has uh, to complement all the, like the amazing movies that he did in the nineties and early 2000s. And like, like, like Chris Hemsworth just doesn't have 30 years of movies that have been up and down in terms of quality and, uh, and character to, to really be able to generate that that personality and you know, maybe he will 10, 20 years from now. I don't know, but I think he, he's got to find the right material and he's got to work with the right people. Like he need, like he needs to work with a Christopher McQuarrie. He like needs to work with Chad Stahelski. He like needs to work with someone who, who can create these types of characters. Right. Cause, cause ultimately like, I don't actually know who wrote this film, but like you know, Sam Hargrave as a director. And I guess Joe Russo actually wrote this movie. Woof. Um, yeah. Stay, stay a director, Joe. Sorry. Um, but yeah, I mean, this this is a tough one. I think. I think that you're just, he just isn't. This isn't the character that he can that he can take to new heights. And um, he, if he were, there are people out there that I'm sure would love to work with Chris Hemsworth that can write him a character that is more nuanced and and you know more has more depth, right? Just like is more interesting, has more depth, and could be made into a new 
whether it's a franchise character or just kind of a cult of personality character, uh, I think that that exists out there, and I just hope that he finds it because I, I do really, I, I do really like Chris Hemsworth, and maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just biased in rooting for him when there's nothing really to to latch onto. I don't know. No, not at all. I mean, by the end of you know Avengers Endgame and that whole last phase of the MCU, like Thor had become one of my favorite characters, and he's a huge reason why. So I'm with you in that. I, you know, I'm not giving up on Chris Hemsworth you know, being an action star, but uh, he's going to have to do something, you know, that, that uses his talents better than this. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, moving on the sporting cast, David Harbour, clearly a standout, uh, obviously no contest there, but it's got anyone else you'd like to talk about? Honestly, no, um, there, there really isn't any standout performances. There's not much time given um, to, to really any characters, I guess, maybe Ovi, um is the other main character but again i just didn't i didn't get much from him mm-hmm. the villain uh, amir asif i think is his name he, he yeah. was i thought he was incredibly boring um <laughs> i guess the 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 actor who played seju saju he he had a, a little bit of range yeah. uh, because he he had to you know like sort of play play both sides at different times in the movie so i guess maybe he there was a little bit of something something from him but overall, I think that, you know, much like many of the, the people who get shot in this movie and, and killed, these characters and performances were just kind of disposable. Um, <laughs> and, and ultimately, I think that this really, it really is centered around Chris Hemsworth. And if you don't, um, if you don't feel that he works, then, you know, no one else in the cast is really going to draw you in. And, and David Harbour, I don't, like, I don't know why he was here again. But like you said, maybe it was some sort of contract thing, but, you know, he really just kind of, showed up to play uh, play a foil for a couple scenes and then Ovi shoots him and that's that you know a, a couple scenes is generous to say that's that's how much yeah. time David Harbour has uh, it's just a shame that you couldn't extract any value out of any of these uh, supporting characters there's your pun for the pun for the episode uh, yeah uh, i so so i so i did see on on letterbox where you watched the one of the, it was an Adam Driver movie that had this uh, supporting actress it as well, which is Khan, which is Gulshif Day Farahani. In it. Wait, she was she the she was the wife from Patterson. Yep. Wow, I never realized that <laughs> she's much better in Patterson than she is in this. <laughs> Scott is shook by movie revelations. Wow, yeah, I should I, I should have picked up on that, but yeah, well, it's, I mean, she's she's a talented actress as she proved in Patterson, but she didn't have anything to do here. Yeah, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think she's honestly been in much else than Patterson. I don't know why her she hasn't. Pa- pa- that's off. so strange. Patterson is the complete polar opposite of this movie because it is literally just this nice, quiet movie about this dude who's a bus driver just going about his daily life. Like I cannot think <laughs> of t- two more inapposite movies to be in. Yeah, I mean, anyway. Jim Jarmusch versus uh, Russo Brothers. Yeah written and produced action movie, I guess, yeah. for you. But uh, yeah, Ness, I think that there really isn't anyone of no other than other than uh, Seiju, Saju. Again, I'm not, <laughs> we're going back and forth on how to pronounce this. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, I think that he's probably the only other standout role. And it's probably only because he has the other like, you know, fun action combat-y scenes that are more interesting, right? Not, not necessarily talking about the bridge scene, but just the hand-to-hand combat that he does uh, go through with, with Chris Hemsworth and, is like a mildly more interesting character in that he has this whole like double cross setup. Uh, did you enjoy watching Sam Hargrave take a bullet to the head in the in the film? No, which one was he? He was one of the 
other mercenaries that gets killed, not on the boat, but the other guy who was like who had who was watching the boat. Oh, he's one of the people that gets shot in the movie. Okay, great. That really yeah, narrows it down for you. No, he's one of no, he's one of the mercenaries. He's like uh I can't remember the is it Guy Tan or Guy San or something like that is his name. Doesn't matter. He gets killed by Seiju near the boat. Uh, but anyway, oh, wow. yeah, poor Sam didn't didn't last too long in this film, and uh, we'll see if he goes on to direct other things. But he might not. Uh, any, so moving on to the themes here, I want to hit these quickly because there really isn't too much to talk about. I think the two big ones before we get to the, just the final scene of the film is uh, you know the relationship between Rake and Ovi, as well as you know Rake's backstory with his son. You are shaking your head here, and you've mentioned briefly already that none of the story or plot really interests you too much. But I'll let you say that the story and plot doesn't interest you too much again before we move on. Yeah, I mean, that's really all there is to it. I mean, I think it's just, it's a very obvious direction for this movie to, to go in, right? Like, he he's lost a child, and so now he has to find his reason. And, and you know, he's lost his reason to live and, and when he loses that child. And now he's, you know, found this other child who's been thrown into his life and you know, with his, through his relationship, he's going to find a reason to live again, which like, you know, it's not inherently like a terrible, you know, idea in theory, but like just the way that it's executed here, it's just, you know, it's an afterthought almost to the plot. Again, we, we get like the one emotional scene where Chris Hemsworth kind of has to lay it all out there about what happened to his son. But I just felt like that there wasn't much to the kid either to Ovi that he, he was just, he was kind of kind of a blank slate, like that. I keep using that phrase, but that's really what comes to mind for me. And so I wasn't because because I didn't care about either character in particular. I wasn't like super rooting for. Oh, please, you know, have this relationship. Please, you know, help Chris Hemsworth find his way back and help this kid whose father is, you know, a terrible drug dealer that probably doesn't really care about him that much and is in jail. Um, I just, you know, it, it didn't do anything for me. Yeah, I mean that's why Seiju is a more interesting character, I think, right? Because at least he's a, he has something in, invested in. Like, yeah, he's probably he like clearly he's done some bad things, right? But but he's yeah. like at least he's fighting. At least he's fighting for something that that feels like it it's redeemable, um, even if he's doing some maybe irredeemable things. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I don't think I have <laughs> much more to add about the plot details either. I think that almost everything in this film, just like plot and character development wise, is is pretty underserved. And uh, I'd say that, that we're not going to get a sequel to this film and we won't be able to develop and things won't be able to develop further. But who knows based on the ending of this film, Scott? I mean, the, yeah. the penultimate scene in the movie sees Chris Hemsworth take a nosedive off the bridge after getting shot, what looked like in the neck, by one of the child soldiers that he'd kind of, I don't even know, just got like embarrassed earlier in the film. Um, in the alleyway where he like basically refused to kill these kids as, you know, an appropriate human being response to, to kids not wanting to kill them. It seems, seems right. But uh, this kid decided to take it personally and seemingly got his revenge in the penultimate scene of the movie shooting. After the whole thing was over, you know, the helicopter shot down, the big bad had been defeated, you know, sh pokes his head up on this bridge, shoots Chris Hemsworth in the neck. And uh, after a few seconds of, uh, or minutes, you know, I don't even know how long it lasts tries to hold on, but eventually just takes a nosedive off the bridge before uh, Ovi and, and uh, Khan escape, because at this point, Seiju has also died. Then the final scene of the movie is, uh, presumab is presumably Ovi back in India, 
and kind of either at the you know a local community pool or at school or whatever it might be and a vague shot like a kind of a, a blurry last shot of Ovi after he emer emerges from the water is a character that looks like Rake in the background watching him Scott I think the big question is do you think this do you think this person watching Ovi is is supposed to be Rake or do you think it's supposed to be this Amira Seif drug lords men coming to kidnap him again which which do you think it is it's it's not exactly chiron coming out of the ocean in moonlight is it but um yeah i I don't, I don't know like this ending just didn't really make much sense to me i guess like i guess the idea right going back to what we we're just talking about in that last point is that now now that chris hemsworth he just he needed a reason to live right and and this kid has has you know provided him a reason to live and so because of that he has survived despite, you know, insurmountable odds against him, despite getting shot in the neck and falling off this bridge or whatever. I don't know. I mean, that's that's all I can really stitch together of why they would bother to, you know, have this ambiguous ending other than like, right, like to set up for a sequel, I guess, maybe is, is the obvious answer here. But I, I think it is probably meant to be the Hemsworth character. But, you know, whoop de doo That's all I have to say. Yeah, I mean, I think it should tell you all you need to know is that the original ending was, I think, like, honestly, just, just the, like, without the final shot, I, I think. And, you know, Hansel's yeah. character died, like, like you were presuming in the penultimate, just dies, right? And then, you know, life life goes on for these people who do survive uh, this extraction. And apparently it just didn't test very well with audiences. They needed some sort of feel-good ending to the movie, and so they, they shot... A couple other different endings, and they went with the ambiguous one. Because um, nothing says feel good like you know child soldiers being murdered. And, but it's fine if the father figure, uh, who now has a son, the white savior. Lives, sorry, I might have just brought up another. Man, I was really hoping we'd make it to the podcast yeah. talking about white yeah. saviorism. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so close. At least we didn't have to talk about fridging this episode. Oh yeah, or uh, Chekhov's guns. What, what was the what was the mistake that you made in one? We're episode? not going to relive that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no. I thought we were going to make the whole episode without talking about white saviorism, but uh, nevertheless, Chris Hemsworth is is a white savior in this film. The ending—I just wish they'd just let him die, right? Like, cl like clearly, that's the—I mean, that is what the movie calls for. And and only reading that interview and seeing it kind of confirmed that they basically just tailored wanted the ending to die the, the whole movie. Yeah, tailored the ending just of the give film. Give the man what he wants. To what test? To what test audiences uh, wanted, which is fine in some cases, but I think it's. Uh, I think there's certain filmmakers in Hollywood who probably would bristle at the idea of changing the ending of their movie based on test screen reactions. Uh, Sam Hargrave and the Russo's maybe not one of them in the in the school of thought of how can we get you know how can we make a movie make three billion dollars? So obviously how a movie tests with your audience is important for that. Nevertheless, I think that I would have been happier just with that with the kind of finite ending of of Chris Hemsworth having died. Like like that felt like the right ending, and and honestly I felt good about that. That is like something I felt good about in the movie. Like it felt right. Uh, kind of show. I think it, it kind of means it kind of shows how you you have to appreciate life and and have life have its value. And it kind of undermines that when when someone can go a whole movie not have an appreciation for that or, or value that life, have a last second change of heart, and then kind of get get away with all this carelessness. And I think that uh, the, the movie telling a different story is a little bit weird. And I don't think that it's entirely what the ending is doing. Although it certainly wants. It's certainly giving you permission to to think that there's a happy ending to to this film when maybe when maybe there shouldn't be, 
And I, and I really hope they don't make a sequel to this for many reasons, unless they're going to make the world a lot more interesting. Uh, I, I, I did say in my letterbox review that ambiguous endings can work a lot of the time. Uh, when, when you're in them, I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time is Inception, which I mean, it, it, I remember when that movie came out, like one of the most, I mean, all my friends were like super frustrated with the ambiguous ending. They're just like, oh, I need to like, I need to know what happened. I'm like, do you, do you need to know what happened? I think that ambiguous ending works really well and makes you, makes you question it in a lot of really positive ways. But this is not the type of movie where I think an ambiguous ending works very well. And uh, just add it to the cons list for this film because uh, it's not the first uh, nor the last. All right, Scott, let's get out of here. What do you, uh, what, what was your favorite scene or moment from Extraction? Let's extract ourselves from this discussion. Well, I wasn't um, going to make another extraction pun. I had to, <laughs> I had to make one since you made one. Yeah. Um, I guess it's some of those moments from the one shot sequence that you talked about, like the, someone getting hit by a car. I can't remember exactly who. Um, no, they both do. They both get hit by a car in the same. Okay. Place. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was good. I like when they like actually get out of the cars and they're like going through the building. Like it felt like I was watching like end of watch or some found footage movie, which I like those types of movies. I like found footage movies. So um, I, I wanted more of that sort of realism immersion throughout the whole thing. Um, and I just didn't get it, but those moments were all right. Yeah. Maybe an interesting more hook for this film would have been like body cameras, like do a movie just with like sure. with just body cameras. Obviously there's certain parts of that that wouldn't work. Um, earlier on in the film before the extraction actually starts. But, you know, even just doing it after the extraction starts, I think that would have been a much more interesting way, although you don't get to see Chris Hemsworth's ab, Chris Hemsworth's abs uh, in that version of of the film, even if... Yeah, they, Chris Hemsworth's like, hold on, let me just turn my body camera on here so I can, for this scene where I'm going to cry and talk about my son, you know. Am I I'm wearing sure this camera right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so maybe that would have been a more interesting thing that, or a more interesting thing they could have done. I'm waiting for that movie to happen, a body camera movie. I can't believe that hasn't happened yet, to be honest. Um, well, end of Watch kind of was. But. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That is an intense movie, man. That is a real thriller. <laughs> you have to be in the right emotional mindset to watch that film. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so my favorite scene is probably going to be something out of the one shots as well. Uh, definitely not any of the scenes where children get thrown off roofs or shot in the head. Would not recommend those scenes. Uh, Scott, what are you going to give uh, Extraction out of 10? 3.8. Um, this movie just didn't really do very much for me. I think you can file this one right next to the rhythm section in terms of 2020 action movies with nothing much really going for them and a, a very much misused star at their center. Yeah, that feels about right. I'm giving it a slightly higher score, but uh, honestly, I thought I was going to be much higher than, than you are, but I'm turns out I'm not. I'm at a 4.7. All right. Well, that should just about do it for our discussion of Extraction. Let's take a short break. And when we return, we have two hot news topics to discuss this week the feud between AMC and NBC Universal, and several changes to this coming year's Academy Awards. Uh, we'll talk about all that when we return. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As promised before the break, we have two news topics to discuss. Scott, we'll talk. We'll start with the one that you would like to talk about first. Although in reality, we both want to talk about this, and that is the announced changes to uh, the Oscar ceremony coming this year. Some of those have to do with the actual ceremony itself. A few of those have to do with the rules for uh, qualifying films that are making them eligible for uh, Oscar nominations. Scott, what are the highlights that you want to call out? 
Yeah, so there's a couple of things, I think, here that are worth talking about. And, you know, for once, Scott, the Academy has made some changes, and they're actually pretty good and reasonable changes. Uh, it, it feels weird to be saying that, given their track record, especially in recent years, um, with, you know, coming out and saying, we're going to do best popular film, or we're not going to have certain awards on the telecast, and then, you know, getting bullied into oblivion by the internet. I don't think you're going to see that with these changes. Um, first of all, the you know, the, maybe the most significant change is that uh, streaming movies are going to be eligible this year for, you know, the, the big Oscars, um, with, with some exception, right? Like Bad Education is a movie that we reviewed last week, was a straight to streaming movie for HBO. And what I understand the idea is that because that movie was always going straight to HBO, right? Like HBO purchased this film at after TIFF last year, and they were always planning to distribute it via online. And so that is not the type of movie which is going to be eligible for uh, for Oscars. That's going to be treated as a TV movie and uh, will be up at the Emmys. Uh, however, something like Trolls World Tour, for example, which was supposed to have a theatrical rollout, theoretically could be nominated for, uh, for Best Animated Feature or Best Picture. Who knows? Uh, let's get weird. Um, <laughs> if, if, you know, if the Academy chooses to, uh, even though Trolls World Tour will not be having any sort of theatrical run, at least we don't think so. Um, you know, once theaters, <laughs> yeah, once theaters open back up and stuff, um, and and so that obviously is significant. And obviously, this is a the Academy has said this is a one-time only change. This is solely because of the coronavirus, um, you know, impacting the the film distribution market. But you know, I, I do wonder if with this change specifically. Will, will it encourage filmmakers? I mean, I, particularly maybe independent filmmakers. Um, again, I don't think this is going to affect the big budget films too much, the big tentpole films that we always talk about. But, you know, a movie like Promising Young Woman, for example, which is one that's on our been on our radar um, since the first trailer came out and stuff. W would that potentially push the director towards, uh, or, you know, wh whoever's in charge of distributing this film, the studios, to saying, hey, we're going to, put this movie out on streaming now that, you know, it, it could be considered for Oscars. We could probably get pretty good viewership out of this by, by uh, moving it straight to VOD. So maybe we'll, uh, we'll take the risk. We'll put this out on Hulu and we'll, you know, shop Carrie Mulligan for best actress or something. I don't know. I, th I, I, I think that will be interesting to see whether this, you know, has any effect on that sort of thing. Do you have any thoughts on that, Scott? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Promising Young Woman because I actually think of this one today because this is another film that just it hasn't been redated and was supposed to come out several weeks ago if uh, if the world were in a normal state. And uh, Scott, you'll you'll probably be encouraged to know that Focus Features is the one distributing uh, Promising Young Woman, which is a subsidiary of NBC Universal, which is not shy about putting movies uh, straight to VOD right mm -hmm. now. So I actually ex I'm actually my gut so my hunch is that they are going to announce this as a launch um, movie on peacock that's what i think mm. is gonna happen. so when the full launch when the full launch happens in july i think this movie is going to go straight to vod uh th there is sorry not straight to video i'm sorry straight to streaming uh, on peacock i think that's going to be one of the things that uh they they use to get people to you know try the free month or whatever they do for you know when they launch for people Let's be honest. The reason people are trying the free month is to watch Friends. I know how society works. Yeah, uh, I mean, Friends isn't Friends isn't uh, NBC Universal, but 
the offices, which might be the one that you're thinking about. But, oh, okay. It, yeah. One of the two. I, I interchange them because, you know, the same type of people tend to stand both shows. Re- rest assured, though, Friends will be on HBO Max releasing later this month. Uh, so you can, okay. get your, you can get your fix even sooner uh, than, than July uh, for Friends because they, uh, I don't, I guess that they weren't able to shoot their like Friends reunion special or whatever. Maybe they'll do like a Parks and Rec reunion special via via Zoom chat or something to to satisfy mm-hmm. all the all the crazy Friends fans out there that I know exist because of all the shirts that they sell that I just don't understand. I don't understand the fandom around that show. I get it, like it's cool, but I don't know why people are so crazy about it thirty years later. Not okay. That's an exaggeration. Twenty five years later. Uh, Anyway, I think that, uh, yeah, I think that Promising New Woman's an interesting look. And, and just generally speaking, I do think that this will this will reassure some indies who might be getting pressured by their film studios to go straight to uh, to go straight to VOD to kind of cash in on the, you know, the VOD market, even if it is somewhat more limited. I mean, in some cases, it might even be more robust, but but perceived right now as somewhat more limited than a theatrical release. I think it de- I think that depends a lot on the film and. A lot about the target audience and whether it's more likely to be pirated uh, or or purchased, you know, rented through VOD, and also what the price point is. There's lots of factors that go into that. But I think that um, you're going to see a few more titles start to go that direction, especially from the NBC Universal banner, uh, whether it's Focus or whether it's Universal more proper. I think that you're going to see more from that direction, and there won't be consequences as of yet for for the Oscars and for awards, at least not this year. I think the consequences around maybe what will or won't be showed in the future at AMC movie theaters is another question. Uh, but it is a little bit reassuring, but there is a trickier part of this too, is that again, maybe less so for the smaller films. I don't know how much power, you know, actors who are going to be in smaller films will have over this, but a lot of times in contracts, there will be clauses that state there has to be a theatrical release of the film. They can't, you know, shuttle it straight to DVD or straight to VOD like you would, you know, like we've kind of seen a few movies over the past couple of years, whether it's Under the Silver Lake or even, you know, Hot Summer Nights with Timothy Chalamet. I mean, I mean, I imagine he's the kind of actor now who would have that sort of clause in his contracts, although not that he probably wanted Hot Summer Nights to go to theaters because it's not like any, he wanted more eyes on that movie. <laughs> um, anyway, I think that, yeah, I, I think that you're, the indie movies that we're talking about are probably less likely to have those types of contracts, but it is another thing that, that has to be considered too when you're talking about the distribution of these movies. We're in crazy time, sure, but a lot of a lot of big movie stars do have those in their uh, do have those clauses in their contracts. Yeah, so it's something to watch for. But I, I mean, I for one, I think I'm glad that the Academy is going to make this change so that um, you know, you know, maybe if there's not like a complete incentive, uh, at least you know, distributors aren't going to be discouraged from putting their movies out on on VOD because they think that it's going to throw them out of the Oscar race or whatever. But yeah. uh, the other big change Scott from this Academy announcement is something I think that we and probably many others have felt is a necessary change for, for years now. And that is the merging of the sound categories, sound editing and sound mixing have been merged into just a overall best sound category. And Scott, you know, I, I made a crack about the fact that, you know, the Academy, a couple of years ago was like, we're not going to show certain awards during the telecast or whatever to try to streamline the show. That was a stupid idea of how to streamline the show. This I think is a totally reasonable idea of how to streamline the show. I think you're still honoring all of the artists who, you know, work in these particular departments on the film in the sound department on the film. But, yep. uh, you know, you're acknowledging, I think that it may be sometimes difficult to articulate. I mean, there is a difference, but it's, it's, 
difficult to articulate the difference between sound mixing and sound editing. And for, you know, viewers, it's, it's one less award, right? Like it, it speeds things up by a few minutes. It's, it's one less award of the, you know, awards that the general casual movie fan that they want to try to appeal to, yeah. you know, don't care about, to be honest, like they, they don't care that much about the technical awards. And in particular, sound mixing and sound editing, you don't really know exactly what they're talking about, what what this is. Yeah. Um, I think people will care you know, more about this award now because of it. And this might yeah. be the point that you're making. Yeah. And, and furthermore, a lot of times the same movie would win for best sound editing and sound mixing. So uh, I do think it, it somewhat makes sense to do this. And I think, you know, it's a, for once a, a fairly smart move to streamline the, the award show uh, from the Academy. So, yeah, I'm a fan of this one. Yeah, I think yeah, there are some exceptions about who wins sound mixing and sound editing. And I've actually had some opinions now that, you know, after I sat down and read about 10 articles and spent about two hours trying to understand the difference, I finally was able to and had some opinions on, uh, you know, what I thought in this past year should win mixing versus editing, et cetera, et cetera. But I think for me, ultimately, it's really, you know, four out of five films in each category are usually the same. There's usually one that's different across the two categories. I think Rise of Skywalker got sound editing and Ford versus Ferrari got sound mixing or some something like that this past year. I can't remember which it was. I might have reversed it. Um, but most of the time they're, they're the same. And the fact that they doubled the number of people who could be honored within for like for each movie makes like ensures that people in the sound editing department and in the sound mixing department both get the, you know, get the award, uh, you know, get, get the statues, you know, get the recognition for the work that they've done. So no one's being slighted uh, from that from that perspective at the Oscars just by by consolidating the awards. And you're right, it cuts down on the time. I do think that it's going to actually get people to care about the okay, awards more because at some point you're just like sound editing and sound mixing. Like I liked the sound in this film, but I don't know what this means. I don't I don't care. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to think about this anymore. Yeah, I mean, just it feels a little weird to break you know the sound category down into these two like more specific parts. When I think like you could do that with any of these technical categories, right? Like you look at visual effects. I mean, there are hundreds of VFX artists on, you know, a Marvel film, for example, like, and they're all doing different things, right? Like if you really wanted to, you could get down in the, in the weeds. I mean, they do have the technical Oscars or whatever the, I don't, I don't remember exactly what the name of that is, but they, they do have a different ceremony that, that does, I think, get more in the weeds. So I think um, for, for, you know, the, the Oscars, which are appealing to the casual movie fan, keeping them under this broad, moniker of best sound makes sense yeah no that was the big changes for the for the oscars in the coming year i think that we're both overall pretty pleased with these changes i mean the one-time change makes a lot of sense and i don't expect that to uh persevere past this year uh, in terms of <clears throat> the eligibility requirements for films and one thing that is kind of related to these eligibility requirements is the fact like we mentioned that nbc universal has decided that you know trolls world tour at least they're saying this much. We don't know whether it's actually true or not, of course. But the fact that Trolls World Tour made them about has made about a hundred million dollars plus in VOD streaming, and Warner, at least, sorry, not Warner Brothers, NBC Universal views that as a success. I think the original Trolls made somewhere in the three hundred million dollar range at the at its theatrical release. Um, a lot, you know, obviously that's not all profit and, and they do have to split the revenues 50-50 with the theaters. When it comes to VOD, a much larger portion goes straight to the studio. I believe it's about 80% goes to the studio and there's fewer costs associated with distribution uh, related to VOD. So I think that 
basically what they were saying is that in terms of pure profits, it actually has netted out to be roughly the same uh, in terms of profitability over this release. Take that for what it's worth. But the big thing came uh, in kind of the second part of this interview that I think I believe they were doing with the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. I can't remember which it was. Uh, some I think one of the heads of NBC Universal, whether it's uh, Jeff Shell, who's their CEO, I'm not 100% sure who it was, but talking about how in the future, you know, this we are going to exercise the straight to VOD uh, like distribution channel as opposed to distributing the movie via theaters when it makes sense for us. Basically, I think saying when we're releasing animated movies in the future or when we're releasing releasing more family friendly content in the future we're going to forgo the theatrical channel and probably just go straight to VOD. So think about pretty much anything under the DreamWorks uh, or Illumination banner. Think of something like, maybe, maybe not Despicable, maybe not the Minions movie, but, but honestly, maybe, who knows, right? Uh, you know, Shrek movies, How to Train Your Dragons, the, you know, all, the, all, the, all the categories that could potentially fall into that. NBC Universal is gonna consider on a case-by-case -case basis just taking those straight taking those straight to VOD. They think it can be more profitable there. And uh, AMC took umbrage with that to say the least, is the largest uh, theater chain in the U.S. Uh, they went straight to NATO, not the North America Trade Organization, the North American Theater Organization. Uh, a very, very distinct difference between those two bodies, apparently. I think uh, it's good to, good to note the difference there, because when I first read the article, I was like, why does NATO care about this? And then I had to go look up that it was the, the theater, theatrical organization there. And basically, AMC has decided that they will no longer show any NBC Universal distributed movies in their theaters. So that includes things like the Fast and Furious franchise, the Jurassic World franchise, which is uh, making Scott very happy that we may not have to review Jurassic World, whatever the hell the third one's being called, because I can't remember, even though they did announce the title. That also, But that also includes, like I said, in anything, any animated movies in, in terms of you know, DreamWorks, Illumination, Banners, things like that. It includes movies like 1917, so movies who are like heavy Oscar contenders coming out of NBC Universal, it includes all Blumhouse movies, it includes Jordan Peele's movies. So these are a lot of films that are very popular and do very well in theaters are very and very profitable in general. Um, that, that AMC is saying, you know what, if you're gonna take this approach on a case-by-case -case basis to distribute your movies, we are not going to show any of your films. And that's a bold move. That's a bold move, Cotton. I think that uh, it's, it's a really strong perspective uh, initially, I thought that that Cineworld, which is Regal's parent company, had come out in support of them and, and backed them. But when I read the statement more closely, they're actually just saying that they won't show those those movies in theaters that go straight to VOD, which is not the same thing as what AMC is saying, just a blanket ban on NBC Universal movies. So AMC going a little bit out on a limb uh, for the protection of the theatrical window that is obviously very important to you know to the security of the business that theaters are doing on a regular basis, Scott, but would love to get your thoughts. Do you think this is a, a smart hill for AMC to die on? Or do you think that, you know, they're in the wrong and Universal is maybe more in the right here? No, I mean, I think I lean towards, yes, that AMC is probably making a, a reasonable call here. I think that, you know, you hit something on the head, hit the nail on the head by saying that, um, you know, animated releases after Trolls World Tour are something maybe that, uh, that NBC is going to be looking at uh, to, to moving to straight to VOD. And I think that AMC probably rightly sensed that that's a huge loss of theater revenue right there for if you're talking about family movies going straight to VOD because families are, you know, are a large proportion of people who go out to the theaters. Like there just yeah. aren't 
a lot of people like me or you who are just like going to the theater 70 times a year by ourselves. Yeah, and that's 40 to 50 bucks for every family that's going, right? It's way more money yeah. than, than what you're, they're paying for the rental. Exactly, and I mean like m families with like younger children, they will go see every animated movie. Like it doesn't matter what it is, they, they'll go see all of them. So that's, you know, that's, that's revenue for the theaters right there. So I think that from that perspective, it, it, it makes sense for AMC to do this. And like, you know, we, we had some conversations about this guy, but I do think AMC is probably in slightly better bargaining position here, right? Because um, they have a lot of other movies that they can show if uh, if NBC Universal like sticks to their guns and is like, no, we're, we're not gonna back down. Um, and, you know, fine, just don't show our movies in theaters. AMC, yeah, they're gonna lose some revenue. Like we said, they're gonna lose some of these big animated movies, but I think they're probably going to be fine with, with everything else that's out there. Um, all the other big studio movies that they're going to, going to be getting, you know, Disney obviously being a huge name that's going to yeah. have Wonder ten, multiple tentpole releases every month, probably. Um, and yeah, and so AMC would never threaten Disney like this. Let's put it that way. Right. Whereas I think universal right is now in a position of like, you know, Jurassic World, Fast and the Furious, these are movies which they never would have moved straight to VOD, right? They they always envisioned these going to theaters and, you know, they should be seen in theaters. I mean, as as stupid as Jurassic World 3 is going to be, right? It's a, it's a big theater block blockbuster movie. And so this, I mean, I'm sure they're, they're scrambling after hearing this because not having, you know, the theatrical distribution from the largest theater chain in the country and for the others that have come out and backed them, right. Um, of movies like, like Jurassic world, which they probably were like, this could make a billion dollars. Um, it will make a billion dollars probably. I mean, yeah. Those movies um, are making a billion dollars. Like that's, that's a billion dollars that they may not get. Um, if, if AMC sticks to their guns here and if, if NBC decides to stick to their guns here, I mean, I think that ultimately for me, right. When I heard this news, my first reaction was, well, this will blow over in a short amount of time. And I still feel that way. Right? Like, I just think that, you know, it's easy to look at this headline and be like, oh my gosh, this is huge. But, you know, I think you made a good comparison, Scott, when we were talking about saying this is kind of like the Spider-Man leaving the MCU type thing. Everyone freaked out about it for, you know, a week or two because the implications were massive if you're just looking, you know, from a, from a 90,000 foot view. But, uh, the companies, you know, at, at play here, I think are just too smart to let this type of thing uh, actually happen and let so much revenue for both parties go down the drain. I think they're going to negotiate something that is going to make this, you know, Mexican standoff come to an end sooner rather than later. So personally, if you're a big fan of these NBC Universal properties, I wouldn't be too distressed about the possibility that you might not get to see this movie on the, these movies on the big screen. Cause I think when the time comes, you are going to get to. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I do think this will blow over and I, and I do think that even if it doesn't, that like Regal is going to show these films, like Regal is not going to pass up the, even the potential additional revenue that they're now going to get for showing yeah. an F9 or a Jurassic world three, because their biggest rival AMC is, you know, too stubborn to, to find some sort of middle ground maybe with NBC Universal. I mean, I personally kind of side, I, I will say like, I think I kind of side on on AMC, like, you know, AMC needs the theatrical window in order to preserve their business. Like if they, you know, if they, if that theatrical window starts to erode, whether it's movies going straight to VOD, uh, 
when Universal chooses or if, you know, movies are going to be put out on streaming uh, earlier than the three-month window, I think that kills their business, right? Like if someone told you, Scott, I mean, maybe not, uh, maybe we're bad examples, but if someone told the average moviegoer that, hey, you know, if you just wait a month rather than three months, you can see this movie, you know, at home on X streaming service, most people aren't going to go out to the theater and see the movie. Like, this is the truth. Like for most movies, there are exceptions, of course, the big tent poles may be the exceptions, but most people aren't going to go out and see, you know, the average the average movie outside of those big tent poles, um, and that's and that's a lot of revenue lost. And families, definitely on the family film component side, Sky. I think that you know whether it's animated or whether it's just general family fare, I think those are the prime candidates to go straight to VOD. And I'm just honestly kind of skeptical that 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 they view a hundred million dollars in VOD versus three hundred million dollars in the theater as as equally successful. I mean, I haven't seen the PNL. I haven't seen anything like that about how they're, you know, how they are allocating that revenue and seeing and, and realizing those profits. But like that, that barely makes the money back uh, for, for, for what it costs to make trolls world tour. And so I just find it a little bit interesting that that is counted as successful. Uh, I mean, I don't know what their expectations were, but I would have expected this movie to do about the same as, as trolls world tour uh, as the original trolls movie would have done. I mean, that was a fairly successful animated film. Uh, even though I thought it, I mean, looked stupid, and still think the sequel looks stupid too. Um, like, like a, that was a relatively successful franchise starter for Universal uh, back in 2016 when the first one came out, and I was just a little bit skeptical that that they actually consider that VOD straight to VOD release a success. I think there's certainly other scenarios which, you know, releasing a movie straight to VOD and getting 50 million dollars for it would be successful, but how costly it is to make an animated film like Trolls World Tour. I'm just a little bit surprised that's actually success. And I, and I wonder how much of it is just, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, put a microphone in front of the NBC Universal's team's face and, then, and ask them how their VOD release was. And they're not going to sit there and say, you know what? It sucked. We didn't make as much money as we wanted to. And it just was a strange move then, I think, to take that, you know, bragging about Trolls World Tour's performance a step further and saying, we're going to do this in the future. And that's one of the things that I that I don't like about what's happening. And it seems like this this discussion is is being co-opted around like, oh, because NBC Universal released Trolls World Tour digitally and broke the theatrical window, that AMC is pissed off and now banning their movies. Because that's not what's happening. It's like explicitly not what AMC is doing. It's the fact that they said they're going to do this in the future when the coronavirus pandemic ends that has upset mm -hmm. AMC. And so people talk like framing this conversation around the fact that they did this with Trolls World Tour is the reason why. I think I, I mean, it certainly works in NBC Universal's favor because it makes them look like, hey, we're just trying to like release movies during during quarantine. Um, it it makes them look more like the good guys than I think they are in this situation. And um, I don't know if that's their own. I mean, they certainly want are invested in painting that picture for people, but I think that people are are really very willingly taking that message on board without thinking too much and actually reading, you know, what caught and the the context of the quotes that were happening because. I don't think AMC really cares uh, that much or is, is too invested in people holding all of their content for after the coronavirus pandemic ends. Like, you know, if you're going to release your V, if you're going to release your movie on VOD right now, because of everything that's happening, especially the smaller films, uh, then, then so be it. Right. Like I don't think, I don't think they're going to, to hold that against you too much. I mean, they're certainly not holding it against Disney with Artemis Fowl, things like that during this pandemic, but Disney hasn't come out and said that they're going to release black widow VOD. So it's not, it doesn't really feel like the same same thing to me. And uh, I, I just think that I've been a little bit frustrated with that element of the conversation. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying there. And, and look, I think 
from a broad sort of policy perspective, what what both of us are saying here and maybe leaning towards AMC more is we're pro theaters, right? Like I, th- I still think that, you know, the theatrical experience is the best way to watch any movie. And while you and I may not care anything about going out to the theater to see, or I mean, to see at all a movie like Trolls World Tour, the people who do want to see this movie, who do care about seeing this movie, should have the opportunity to go out to the theater and see it. They shouldn't be, um, you know, you know, resigned to, to watching uh, the movie at home because, you know, these, these two companies are feuding or whatever. So I think at the end of the day, the best outcome is that these movies just will, will go. I mean, obviously there's always going to be straight to VOD movies in, in today's day and age, but that, you know, movies like these big family films like Jurassic worlds and fast nines of the world, get the theatrical releases that they deserve. I mean, I think that's, that's ultimately what it boils down to. Yeah. And, and like we, like we were saying a little bit ago, I think that is going to happen. I think this will, this will blow over yeah. <laughs> certainly by the time that, I don't know what, what would be like the first big universal release? Would it be Jurassic world? Is that coming out later this year still? I don't even know. I'd have to double check. Oh, I think that's next year, isn't it? Is it? I mean, F9 is now, I just can't remember if Jurassic world was there's, I'm sure there's something big that we're forgetting. Yeah, I'm sure it's something obvious that uh, we're missing. But anyway, I mean, whatever their first big release is, whether it's this year or whether it's next year, I mean, I'm sure they'll have some contender in Oscar season that they'll want to be promoting, right? Like they like they always do. I mean, focus, like for example, focus movies. That means like no focus movies would be coming out in theaters. I think that uh, like what was the big? I mean, yeah. So like, promising young woman wouldn't make it to theaters, which would be a bummer. Even though that again, maybe that's not the movie that needs to be seen in theaters, but it is a movie that I would like to see in theaters. You know, if yeah. all if, if things were calmed. Uh, calm right now and not in the middle of a pandemic. So I think this will all get resolved. I, I, I really don't. This is kind of like the world right now. I just feel like everyone's looking for a reason to be upset and looking to start fights because we're all frustrated. And I think that this is hey. one of those fights that will that will die down. Buddy, let me tell you, that is not just the world in quarantine. That has been the world for quite some time, I think. It's just people looking for reasons to get angry. Sure, but I think it's exacerbated right now with uh, yeah, yeah. and everything with you know people's lives being put on hold basically oh yeah everyone is is at their boiling point at, at yeah. this particular time and this is not making things any better yeah well with that scott i think that should do it for episode 91 of some like it scott do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today uh stay inside <laughs> yes don't don't go get a haircut awesome uh go to the bowling alley <laughs> well bowling alleys are dead all right is bowling alleys even a thing anymore Bring your own bowling ball. They're open. That's yeah, all I know. Yeah. Go go to your local bars and drink drink away your coronavirus. Those are not open. <laughs> Where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Scarvydan. And I'm at Shelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also follow our podcast at Media Plug Pods. You can also subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash mediapugpods. Our Patreon has a bunch of different reward tiers for you to check out, and you can receive different rewards depending on how much you're willing or able to donate. And we'd appreciate even if you only contributed at the $1 level. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash pods. Check it out for yourself and pick the tier that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts, where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared so we can continue to reach a wider audience. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies 
And we'll be back next week with a review of the latest horror VOD release. It only got the briefest of theatrical releases earlier this year before the coronavirus pandemic began. And that is a psychological horror movie, The Lodge. Until then, however, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.